All right, I'm here again with Michael Bolden of the 10th Amendment Center. We spoke a while ago, late last year, I think, um, about- Ish, it all kind of blends it, at it this is, point, it's, right? It's just a big blur, it really is. Right. Um, back in 2020, um, we talked about what the 10th Amendment Center is, what it does, what, uh, what nullification is all about. And I'd kind of like for this episode to be really aimed at people who already get it about nullification. They're already on board. They see that this is legitimate, although we can certainly back that up. Um, and they see the need for real action and real steps we can take to diminish government's power um, in a peaceful way, That ideally. Um, I guess so, just if I can yeah. jump in, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess my first thought on that for people who may not be aware, the idea of nullification, whether we're talking about a state level, a local level or individual. I mean, we can talk about 3D printers or agorism and things like that. These are acts of nullification. Mm. What we're talking about is recognizing that government is not going to limit its own power. Power always seeks to expand its own power. We know the old phrase, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, but we should also recognize that power always tries to grow and power people with power always try to claim that their expansions of power are legal. So we can't rely on the people in power, whether it's a federal court system, uh, federal Congress, uh, the executive branch, and in many ways the states as well, the same type of thing on a state level as well. If you rely on them to limit your own power, you shouldn't be surprised that at some point, well, you live under the largest government in the history of the planet, which is what we live under today, the largest military empire, the largest domestic empire in the history of the world by far. The Chinese communist government is outspent by the U.S., federal government by about eight times per year. So you're not defeating socialism in the United States. You're under the largest one in history, probably. Yeah. So we, we need something outside that system, and that is resistance. Now, sometimes you can get one level of government to resist against another because it's politically popular, but in the end, it really requires human action to move forward because you can pass whatever laws you want in a state or a local level that says, oh, well, we're not going to participate in this federal act. But unless the people actually exercise their rights without waiting on federal or national permission to do so, nothing's ever going to change. Yeah. So, um, with regard to that, I mean, one of the things that I think has been really depressing to me over this past year is the extent to which people don't want to do that. And, you know, I, I feel like if our, if a solution relies on getting the majority of the people to go along with what I think is the right thing, then we're kind of doomed. I mean, is that, is that, can I quote doomed? Rothbard? Yeah. Give me some Rothbard. I could always quote some Rothbard, right? Well, Rothbard at some point, maybe this was in his kind of his 60s blip when he was doing a lot of coalitions with the left, but he had said at some point the main task for the libertarian in the present epoch, and I think it applies today, is to set aside their needless and debilitating pessimism. To set their long-term sights on liberty instead about the road to its attainment. It's basically... The old Lao Tzu Chinese proverb, the journey of a thousand miles, begins with a single step. Now, I'm both a total cynic 
and a total optimist at the same time. Yeah, I'm me cynical. Too. Me too. Yeah, I mean, I'm cynical like you, and I recognize, whoa, this crap is hopeless. I mean, you look around us today, and I live in downtown Los Angeles. So, I mean, you get how, like, I'm living amongst status, but if I were yeah. living in a red state capital, or red state city or town, I'd be surrounded by different types of status. The fact mm -hmm. of the matter is, is each side of this current political equation, they just wanna force their way through government power on any, anyone and everyone. So I'm totally cynical about actually achieving concrete, real liberty in my lifetime. But I'm really positive about the fact that I recognize that markets are more powerful than government in the long run. And when people have an opportunity to learn about them and see how it plays out in practice, how things can actually be better without using force and violence in the long run, I think liberty will win. Whether that's 50 years or 5,000 years in the future, I, I don't claim yeah. that. It's just a belief and I feel that that drives me. And maybe it's made up. Maybe I live in a fantasy land. I don't know, but it does give me the motivation to do what I do every single day of the year, which is find ways to to break cracks in the power of the mighty, mightiest empire in the history of the world and set a foundation for liberty for today and in the future. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I don't pretend to have an idea of when or, or really even if we're going to win. Right. But it, it's so clearly the right thing to do and the right thing to fight for. I do feel, though, that if we try and focus our, I mean, and, and I'm not saying that I don't try and change hearts and minds, but sure. I think that if you wouldn't be and, doing this. You'd be hanging out with the chickens exactly. all day, right? Yeah, would, this is a waste of time. Otherwise, if you don't have a belief in something. Yeah, right? yeah. Clearly, I think there's some point to it. But I also yes. think that we need to look at ways where we have some leverage, ways where, we, yes. where we're not dependent on swaying the, the, the vast majority of people to our worldview. Um, and I think that, I think that some, of the, some of the forms of nullification that you mentioned can be that. Um, you know, an example would be, you know, we talked about pot last time, which is, you know, it's probably yeah, yep. the, one I of always the biggest do. success. Yeah, it's one of the biggest success stories for nullification, for local nullification. Yes. And I don't think that, I mean, yes, yes, there was a lot of public support in the end for it, but I don't think it started that way. And I still no. don't think it's certainly not the, it's not that the majority got convinced that marijuana should be legal. It's that certain jurisdictions, people were able to say, we're going to decriminalize or we're going to have a medical marijuana exception or whatever it was. They started doing it on their own. Yes. And, and it didn't require, so like localities like Santa Cruz, California, Breckenridge, I believe, Vail and Breckenridge in Colorado. Of mm -hmm. course, California here, Proposition 215 back in 1996, three different presidents came to the state to lobby against that in the run-up to the vote saying supremacy clause. You can't do this. Federal law is supreme. And if you do, we're going to sue you. You'll lose. They did sue them. They lost. And today we still have 36 states with some form of legalization for for this plant with 15 states doing it broader recreational. And I don't think it's even close to being done yet because year in and year out, we're seeing expansions. For example, there's legislation in Colorado now to raise the limits of the amount that people can just have on them. You know, I'd like mm -hmm. to see it treated like tomatoes where you don't need a permission right. slip or you don't have limits. But each step, I think what happens, especially with, uh, with the cannabis issue, what we learned was early on, at least in my work, the opposition 
opposition was almost entirely from Republicans, and the the support was almost entirely from Democrats, with some libertarians on either side, some opposed, some against. And then over time, when people learned that the scare tactics or the the message of fear that the world was going to come to an end, you're going to fund terrorists, your children are going to die, stuff like that, when they learned that that didn't happen, and on top of it, some people got rich out of it because it's a business as right. well, then all of a right. sudden, some more of the opposition on the margins melted away, and we're still seeing that happen. Although, literally just in the last two months, we heard another Republican in the state of Virginia as they were debating a marijuana legalization measure that's sitting on the governor's desk waiting for a signature, literally saying, you're going to kill your children if you <laughs> legalize this plant. I mean, this type of mentality has been around for a long time. But really, and I wanted to mention one other thing on human action. If, for example, California in a vote, and there's some human action in that as well, I'm not really a voter, but let's say we're talking about that passing. Let's say they pass that, but then everybody said, well, it's still illegal on the federal level and doctors right. wouldn't recommend right. it because the Clinton administration said, if you do this, we're going to find ways to take your license. And they did do that. It was reported in the LA Times in 97 that they were absolutely going to do that. But they did it anyways, and that really is what it gets down to. People were buying and selling and growing and consuming this plant, this product, before it was ever recognized as legal by some government on any level. So it really mm -hmm. actually starts and ends with human action. It starts with people having a willingness to stand up for something that they believe in and exercise their rights on something that's important to them, whether government gives them permission to or not. And then if you can get one level of government to give you that permission after you start doing it because they recognize it's popular or they can't enforce, uh, that sure makes it a lot less difficult. Yeah, yeah. Um, it reminds me a lot of what goes on or what used to go on in China. You know, the Chinese have a long history of evading dictatorial governments. And mm -hmm. so there's the black market has a long yes. history there and very well, you know, lots of family businesses and lots of ways of, of keeping things secret. But what I saw there was that that works up to a certain point. You know, you can't you can't build Tesla in that model. No, you know, no. you can't you can't build big things in that model. And it seems that what's what's happening now with this past year, with all the destruction of small business, um, of of healthcare, even you know, over the last ten years, like a hundred hospitals have gone bankrupt. Um, oh wow, in, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if there are any, if, if new, any new ones have replaced them, but I know that in, in but still, yeah, that's huge. It's huge. It's huge. And it's mostly in rural areas. It's mostly, you know, yeah. places that are already sort of underserved. So there are big solutions that are needed. And so, um, I guess what I'm asking is beyond, um, you know, beyond just you as an individual participating in the Agora and doing your own thing, um, are there ways that we can come together and create sort of, well, my, my idea, which I, I sent you my, my little draft video, sanctuary jurisdictions for freedom. Are there ways yes. that we can do that? Well, in some ways, yes and no. On the one hand, I just wanted to mention, like kind of just hammer home a point that you already made, which is there's very few people that actually agree with us across 
all these issues. Like mm. if if I went for a walk and started to talking to people, if they didn't think I was nuts and I would talk to random people about mm. issues, I'd find one person who says, you know, gun control is the best thing on earth. And then the next person down the street says is the worst person on earth. And those same people might have different views on facial recognition surveillance or health freedom or whatever it may, mandates. It doesn't matter what it is, economics. And I think in the, the situation that we're in today, what has been most effective, at least in my work, is to find to connect with people where they are. Find out what's important to them. Because whether they're on the left or the right, if you believe in liberty, if you're really strong on the liberty message, you can always out-left the left and out-right the right mm -hmm. on whatever issue is mm -hmm. best to them. Yeah. You know, you talk, you talk to a Republican about, like, the right to keep and bear arms, and they're like, yeah, the Second Amendment's my gun permit or <laughs> constitutional carry. And you see, you can say, you know, okay, I can feel you there. But to be honest with you, your gun permit is the fact is that you were born and you're a human being. You don't need permission, you know, because as soon as you give them the right to actually say, well, your permission slip is defined in this text on this paper, then people with power are going to misconstrue that right. or right. twist the meaning of that in ways. And the same thing goes for people on the left that might be more anti-war than some of the general public. Of course, if you believe in liberty, you're going to have a real hardcore anti-war all the time position. And it doesn't matter which person in Washington, D.C. is doing it. It's always bad. It's always evil. You know, collateral damage is murder. You can give this message to people and really hammer it home. And then you can build single issue coalitions. And at least now may, that may not happen with everybody just hanging out you know, looking on social media or going to an event or something like that. But organizationally, at least in my work, the most effective work that we do is when we find ways to set aside differences. For example, with the ACLU, who thinks we're nuts when it comes to the right to keep and bear arms or on healthcare freedom and things. But for example, they're very good on working with us to connect to stop local or state level surveillance programs, mm -hmm. be it uh, biometric surveillance, facial recognition, or things like predictive policing programs using algorithms to predict where crime's going to happen and then forcing uh, resources into areas generally underprivileged areas and things like that. So they'll set aside differences on things like economics and health freedom and gun rights and things like that to work with us on that. And then you can get a win on the board. And over time, I've learned, at least in doing this for, I guess, 15 some odd years now, is that the more that you're trustworthy on an issue like asset forfeiture or surveillance or the right to keep and bear arms or healthcare on one particular issue with one group, the more they're likely to possibly listen to you on something else. Mm -hmm. And the more we do things like that, if, if we could only work with people, for example, that agreed with us on everything, I don't think there'd be too many Thanksgiving dinners ever happening again never, in the future. Because again. like, when <laughs> yeah. you hang out with your family, you have to be able to do that. You hang out with your friends, you have to be able to do right. that. Just on, right. like, what are we gonna eat you next? What are we gonna watch on you... TV? Yeah. Exactly. So we have to be able to have this type of approach with people, even on politics, not acknowledging that things we disagree with are okay. Right. But like, 
that this Putting is still a human aside, being. Maybe. It's still a human being. It's like, okay, we can focus on all the negative all the time. There's a lot of it to focus on, but why not focus on the positive, find that common ground and get things done? And I think that's been very effective for us at 10th Amendment Center because uh, we work with all kinds of groups that you would think would never, ever consider working with us on anything. And well, I think that actually though, helps. Because when, when, you know, when you look around the world, everyone is negatively impacted by the state in some way. And yes. I think what's frustrating for libertarians is that we're coming at it from a principled stand of coercive violence is always wrong. You know, forcing your will on someone else or stealing their, their property without their consent, that's always wrong. And there's a principled, there's a principle at the core of that. And I think for mm -hmm. most people that doesn't seem to, that's what's frustrating for us is that, that doesn't seem to be the case for most people. It's they can see very clearly when it happens to them, or if it's if it's a particular issue they care about, but they are not applying that same principle elsewhere. Am well, I, I think that's how that, that coalition idea actually helps a lot yeah, because yeah. let's say they're applying that principle even by accident on one thing like civil asset forfeiture or wanting to stop militarization of police, people on the left, for example. And then all of a sudden they're not applying it on other things. Well, that's fine. Get something done on this and then maybe start pointing out over time once they build trust with you, they're like, whoa, this, this dude's pretty amazing on this issue that I thought I was good on. I learned so much. Uh, and then all of a sudden, now they're mentioning to me this other – I think they're a little nuts, but I understand what they're talking about, about having consistent principles. Maybe they won't follow along. Maybe they won't agree with you. But at least it's it's an opportunity where I think opportunity didn't exist previously. Now, another quote from Rothbard, it's just a super beat-up paraphrase in my head. But at some point, he basically said – sometime in the 60s again, he's like, you know, libertarians aren't going to cope with the real world literally just by parroting ultimate – principles. Like you don't just, you don't get things done literally by saying, this is how things are supposed to be. The mm. best way I think people learn is by seeing things play out in practice. And that's why I think the cannabis story is so powerful because it showed us how people on the right who are generally really predisposed against this have softened their opposition to it to the point where it has been able to be passed in places like Oklahoma and Utah yeah. and Missouri, places where you never would have thought this would – we would have been laughed out of the room if we said Oklahoma would pass by voter referendum the most expansive medical marijuana program in history. We would have been laughed out of, out of any room 10 years ago, but yet it happened in the last few years. So, And that's because people learn by example. People learn through human action. Now, can we do the same type of thing with the right to keep and bear arms? Are there people on the left? Could we have this conversation and get laughed out of the room that maybe if you start having, I don't know, a medical shotgun program? I mean, I'm just kind of joking, but maybe there's there's situations where you, know, you can be strategic about this and expand and show how the right to keep and bear arms actually helps people rather than hurts people. And then when people learn from practice, then the fear mongering against that will change or has a chance to change at least. And that's what I would really hope for. And that kind of goes through, it's not just Rothbard, this actually, because you know I run a constitution-based organization. This comes from strategic advice from Thomas Jefferson back in 1790. He specifically said in a letter to his uh, great friend, the Reverend Charles Clay, that the ground of liberty is to be gained by 
inches. We always have to, and I'm not, that's his exact phrase, the ground of liberty is to be gained by inches. This is also that great Chinese proverb of the journey of a single miles begins with a single step. I mean, the smart people all through history have recognized this thing. You take one small step and then you get a small win and then people are like, well, that wasn't horrible. And then we do another step and another step. And he said specifically, we have to take what we can get at every step and then continually push for more because it takes time for even good people to recognize what's in their best interest. You, you can't just yeah. tell them. And I think just waving books at people, which is what a lot of people in the liberty movement like to do, uh, yeah. especially in a time where people don't read. Uh, that doesn't help yeah. a lot. We have to lead by example. And that's why I like agorists, because if you think about 3D printer go burr, I mean, like uh, people who are printing firearms are really teaching people in the right to keep and bear arms movement. A lot of them aren't really fully on board with that yet. But at some point, I think they're going to have to be because the more that they restrict these things, the more that people are OK with getting permission slips. Eventually, it's all going to get shut down. And the only way right. around that is to do an end run around the centralized systems. We can do that with money. We can do that with uh, firearms. We can in some ways do that with food and things like that, Healthcare provision possibly as well. Yeah, we, I, I do think, you know, there it's it's pushing us to the point in this last year, especially where, I mean, you, you talked about firearms. I can't tell you how many times I heard from people who are, were, I would have pegged as being on the left, say to uh -huh. me, I never thought I'd be buying a gun. I, uh -huh. never thought I'd, I never thought I'd be standing in this line. I never thought I'd be in this, in this shop. And yet, um, yeah, that's silver linings. Yeah, and and I feel like this um <clears throat> all the the and especially in California, the horrors of what have ha what's happened here and especially what's happened to small businesses, I feel like a lot of people who were probably not political at all have mm -hmm. been awakened to the fact that this this monolith is actually their enemy. Um there's a there's a restaurant here in our town, Tinhorn Flats, and it's I don't know if you've heard about this, but they've been defying the, they were defying the lockdown orders. And so the city, mm. city of Burbank came in first, they took away their license. Then they started fining them. They started laying fines on them every day. Then they cut off their power and oh, wow. power and water. People brought in generators. They're still up and running. I mean, it's, See, that's it's, amazing. Yeah. These guys are amazing. They're, they're really amazing. I don't know the people personally. I've met the the guy's son who's running the, the place now. Mm-hmm. I'd be really surprised if they were political before this, but they've been pushed oh, into a position. And I think a lot of I people I can definitely have. see that, right? So that to me, that's that's an opportunity for us not to go in and say, here, read all these books, but right. hey, do you do you see the nature of this beast now? Yeah. I mean, they may think about that in the broad reach, but even just an example of just a restaurant. I mean, I went to one in San Juan Capistrano a few weeks ago for a, a, a speakeasy event oh, was with like 200 Tom people. It was the Tom Woods thing, and it was really, really fun. It was hosted by Mark Skousen. Um, man, I can't even think of it. It was right at a train station in Capistrano, and they had actually... Uh, ABC liquor license. They pulled their liquor license weeks yeah. earlier and they still had the bar running. I mean, That's at some awesome. point, 
This has to happen. We know that during alcohol prohibition, for example, before alcohol prohibition, I think there were like 13,000 bars around the country. And then after it ended up being like 50,000. The numbers are probably off, but it like quadrupled-ish. And then we also know that by 1928 or so, a majority of the states had literally passed legislation or had some kind of restriction on using state funds to enforce the federal Volstead Act. So literally, as long as people are defying an act and then you start removing the resources towards the enforcement of it, mm-hmm. I think that one-two punch has a big effect. But if you wait for government to do the right thing first, I think you're going to be waiting for a long time. It really does take people like, I guess we can call them heroes in many ways. I used to say everybody who lit up a joint while it was illegal was a hero in many ways. And I think we can say that people who are deciding to open the restaurants, uh, they're heroes. I think people doing all kinds of things like this, uh, the raw milk raiders. I don't know if you ever heard of this Right. Yes, yes, yes. They're not around anymore. But uh, maybe they are, but there was like an official group. So uh, in New Jersey for many years, raw milk is illegal. Also in Wisconsin, America's dairy land, it's illegal. Here in LA, which we're California, I can walk down the street and pick up raw milk whenever I want. So in some weird ways, we do have some- Is it still illegal in New Jersey and and Wisconsin? Yes. Wow. Yes, absolutely. Uh, And a number of other states as well. But it's legal in Pennsylvania. So there's this group of moms that would drive across the border, buy and engage in interstate commerce. Mind you, the feds also say you can't transport this across state line. Uh, FDA, HHS all takes the position that interstate and even intrastate, the feds want to actually ban raw milk all the time. So what they would do is they would drive across the border from New Jersey into Pennsylvania, buy some raw milk, drive it back to make sure that they were crossing state lines, and then consume it in front of some government building in New Jersey and say, yeah. and I have a, like, you can Google it. You can see Google images. Uh, people would hold up signs saying things like, I drink raw milk, arrest me. At some point, that's the type of mentality that people have to take. Now, of course, there's yeah. risk with that. If yeah. I were a lawyer, I wouldn't be able to advise people to break the law, but I'm not, and I'm a human still. <laughs> so at some point, when enough people say no to these government edicts, uh, there's not much they can do to force them down our throats. Yeah. And what I find encouraging is there's there's a growing movement now of people who are interested in common law, who are really saying, you know, who are kind of recognizing all this crap, all this stuff that has been justified, whether whether it's, you know, constitutional or not, it's clearly going against common law. Do you have any thoughts about that movement? I don't know much about it, but I think, you know, I hear like rumblings of it as well. It just doesn't really come across my plate real often. But I think mm-hmm. the the idea still gets down to like, look, we're looking to a higher authority of something. There's some moral standard, some societal standard that we are going to decide to follow rather than what the empire tells us is right and wrong. Yeah. And again, it really is going to get down to that in the long run. Now, can we get like, for example, uh, Oakland, California? California to ban facial recognition? Yes. Can we get Herndon, Kansas to become a Second Amendment or a gun rights sanctuary state? Yeah. A sanctuary city? Yes. And the more that you do that, I think the better off things are going to be. Because most of the worst local programs and state programs are generally partnerships 
with the U.S. federal government. Right. They're, uh, they're, they're funded through federal grant programs. Uh, they're encouraged through federal partnerships. We have joint task forces. The National Governors Association has also said specifically that states are partners with the federal government in most federal programs. So most of the bad things that happen locally, if you follow the money, you're going to find federal grant programs or federal incentives involved, federal mandates. And the more that we decouple from that kind of thing, the more that we can start seeing things play out a little bit more differently from community to community and from state to state. And in that type of a situation, it starts becoming more of a market response. People can learn the more differences you have rather than some kind of homogenous blob of the same policy for the whole country. The more that you have differences, the more, and we're seeing this happen with lockdowns as well. You see yeah. a difference in yeah. Florida versus California. I even saw an NPR uh, piece from maybe February, which was basically like exploring, well, wow, you know, they've been open as normal in Florida for quite a while. And you would expect things to be way worse there than California, yeah, which not has not. like flies. But yet it's really not much different. And they actually, they were like, well, on this metric, Florida may be a little less good off, but on this one, they're actually not. And we can't really understand why. So you're starting to see some exploration of that. And I think these types of things provide examples of how not everything is a one-size-fits-all solution. And when people do things differently, the best way to do it is do it as a community because, well, and that sounds kind of socialist, but that, I mean, you're going to be more effective the more that you can convince people that are close to you regionally to do yeah. the same thing. Yeah. Um, there's also been, so I've had Sheriff Mack on my show. Um, oh, cool. And a lot of people are, are talking about the power of sheriffs. Do you guys Yeah, have, but they mostly suck. They mostly suck. But let me just They're tell terrible. you. terrible. There have been some good ones in California. Even. They have there. Yes, there have. Modoc ah, I'm such a cynic. <laughs> I'm well, so, I've spent the last month battling with law and for and this is the time of year so 10th amendment center most of our work we do primarily education and then we do act nullification activism we work to support state local legislation that undermines nullifies resists some federal program whether it's asset forfeiture surveillance gun control whatever it may be and this is the time of year where most most state legislatives legislatures are in session so and this is the time when we're focusing our energy there and almost all the opposition, the heaviest, most aggressive opposition to anything good is always from cops. It's always from sheriff's associations. It's always from law enforcement associations. And even when it comes to the right to keep and bear arms, if you try to ban wow. a state from enforcing federal gun control, National Firearms Act, Undetectable Firearms Act, Gun Control Act of 68, the NIC system, the bump stock ban, you... Wyoming, for example, there's a bill pending right now, Second Amendment Preservation Act, that would literally set the foundation to end all state and local enforcement of federal gun control. The most wow. aggressive opposition to that is all 23 sheriffs wow. in the state. All wow. of them are aggressively lobbying against that. And in fact, a Wyoming gun owners, I think it's Aaron Dorr, the head of that, he did a video just uh, this week talking about it. He's like, you know how we just had, got to the Senate floor and all of the opposition comes from Republicans and all the opposition from Republicans are coming from these sheriffs that are opposing it. How many Democrats opposed it? And he said, zero. So it's wow. not that the Democrats are good on this, 
But the law enforcement lobby groups are terrible. Even okay. back a few years ago, we spent a lot of time working to uh, get hemp legalized, which was legalized in maybe 17, 18 states before the feds decided to say, oh, well, we can't enforce this anymore. We better legalize on a federal level as well. And that's basically how it played out. Uh, but even back then, we would get state after state after state, the same garbage lie from law enforcement lobby groups that says, if you legalize hemp, what people are going to do is they're going to grow marijuana, which is the terms are wrong, but you're going to grow marijuana in the same field. And therefore, we're not going to be able to bust drug, illegal drug dealers. And we know this is a lie because if you plant those two plants, these cousins or sister plants in the same field, the hemp plant over a very short amount of time will totally eat the marijuana plant and there will be no THC left. So anyone who is literally mm. trying to do that is either an idiot or is going to be, they're not going to be a drug dealer. They're only going to have right. hemp. So, but yet state after state uh. after state, it didn't matter if it was California or Kansas or Nebraska or Virginia, you had the exact same talking point. And I'm assuming that comes from some Department of Justice uh, so, okay, line. So here's of, my question. Are they, are they motivated because they're, because they're, their funding from the feds is going to be cut off if they go oh, along yeah. with that? So this Without is a, money, a doubt. Okay. So this is about money. This is, this is in your view, yeah, this yeah. is pretty clearly about money. There's what? billions of dollars that go into federal state joint law enforcement task forces. There's hundreds of them on all kinds of issues that exist. Most of them, a lot of people don't even know exist. Billions of dollars in equipment, cash. There's civil asset forfeiture right. where they take the money. Uh, the locality acts as like basically cops on the ground. They're doing the enforcement work for the federal government. There's maybe one federal agent assigned to a, a case. The locals do all the work on the local payroll. They're then deputized as federal agents while still on the local payroll. And then they confiscate stuff under a very lax federal asset forfeiture uh, standard. Then the feds take the cash and they divvy 80% back to the locals. So there is They're a pirates. huge They're funding just part of this. They're just pirates. Oh, absolutely. At, without uh, doubt. And we are seeing the same type of opposition on this in Missouri talking about trying to end federal gun control enforcement with a similar bill that I'm talking to about in Wyoming, but also in Missouri. And that's already passed out of the state house by a huge margin in Missouri. But the greatest opposition to that has been from law enforcement lobby groups. They, they tell us that if, if, if specifically they have been telling people if they're not allowed to use federal gun crime charges against people, in other words, you have to just keep hands off of federal gun control. If you don't do that, they won't be able to use that to get more people behind bars for pot. Because <laughs> what they use it, what they do is they use it as a force multiplier. If someone gets arrested for like an illegal grow or something like that, most of the times, if you're smart and you're in that industry, and your black market or gray market, you're probably going to have a firearm. So when they get raided, they find a firearm and they're like, well, a firearm in a drug crime, that adds an extra 10 years. Even we'll drop one. that. We'll drop, yes, we'll <laughs> drop that if you tell us who all your business associates are. And they use this gun control as a tool. It's not like there's not enough people thrown in jail for, for drug crimes as it is. Right. 
It's just never enough for these people. So I'm sorry. Sheriff Mack is a wonderful person. Uh, like, great. And I know what he's trying to do. And I think there are many individual law enforcement people mm -hmm. that recognize that this is the right way. But the fact of the matter is, is that most laws on the books shouldn't exist. And if you're deciding to take a job enforcing them, uh, to me, you're, you're first of all very suspect. Why do you want to enforce this stuff? And two, you're definitely gonna have a very hard time from the inside. And the 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 overarching, the, the law enforcement unions and the sheriff's associations, the lobby groups, they are aggressively against anything that advances liberty. You wanna restrict their surveillance ap apparatus? No way, the world's gonna come to an end, children are gonna die. We were told uh, in by one sheriff in Wyoming just last week specifically, if you stop uh, enforcing federal gun control, you ban them from enforcing gun control. Look, we're fully Second Amendment, but we need to we need to have this. They're you know they're gonna this only helps protect criminals like child traffickers and rapists. This is the type of scare tactics they use all the time, and because Republicans are so addicted to this thin blue line garbage, they immediately yeah. just crumble. So what's going to happen? Sorry for my rant. No, that's a, that was a great rant. Um, what's <laughs> What's going to happen at, at some point, and, um, you know, I'm not in the business of making predictions because when I try and time things, it, I'm always wrong about the timing. Right, same. But not always, but a lot of the, I'm, big things like this. But if you make enough predictions, eventually you'll get yeah, one well, right, and then you just forget about all the other ones. Yeah. But, um, you know, at some point, this this financial house of cards that the federal government has going is going to come crashing down. What would... Um, the federal debt is what is not like 130 times GDP now. I mean, it's, it's and that's not even counting all the unfunded mandates. That's not counting everything. So I okay, I've so seen numbers that say that. okay. What, yeah, what so whatever it's like 28 some trillion. I think the real numbers like if you count everything, all the Social Security and all that stuff, it's probably like 130 trillion. I mean, it's some unsustainable thing. So Do we you know it's unsustainable. What happens what when happens? that money disappears? What happens Oof. when these state and local officials who are now dependent on that slush fund, I see that as an opportunity. I see, well, you know, they're not, they're not going to have that dependence anymore. That moment's coming. I mean, again, I don't well, know when, but. It's an opportunity. It's also a very dangerous situation. It's like mm -hmm. a caged tiger, a caged beast, right? Yeah. If you think about it. And uh, if you remember back in the Ron Paul days, Ron used to always, about his presidential runs, he used to always cite, if he would do like recommended book readings, a guy named Chalmers Johnson on foreign policy. He wrote this kind of um, uh, trilogy of books, Sorrows of Empire, for example, was one of them on U.S. empire building. But he also sometimes, and I saw him give a speech in Whittier to a group of Quakers, which is kind of cool <laughs> that that still mm -hmm. exists. Oh, yeah. Like I went to a Quaker event in Whittier, California, here in Southern California, and there's Chalmers Johnson speaking, and he's passed away now. But basically, you know, he took kind of an economic, this is a very left-leaning bunch of people that came out. This is during the Bush years. And he's basically saying, like, look, there. I don't remember the numbers, but in order to keep the military empire going, they're borrowing X amount of dollars per day, whatever it's billions or millions, whatever the number, some astronomical per day from the Chinese to keep the thing afloat. And he went on, he says, things that can't go on forever don't. Like this will not last forever. This is a house of cards. And what you're talking about is, is I mean, it's really the same thing. They cannot print 
an economy forever. At some point, either people are going to start opting out of that system and using other stuff, or it comes crashing down. And I think it does it does provide an opportunity as long as there is a foundation built. People have to have better principles for liberty in a more broader kind of broader understanding, I think, in general society to be able to come out of that in a positive way. But if there is some type of – I'm not trying to be like a collapsitarian of any type here – I don't want something like that because I think a lot of people will go through a lot of pain. But we have to keep in mind that generally out of the ashes of an economic crisis, an economic collapse, is not an American revolution for liberty. It really is a Mao or a Stalin. Generally, what rises from the ashes of a terrible thing like that is like Weimar Germany. Mao, our great mm-hmm. examples, comes a more mm-hmm. powerful dictatorial system. And if people are already uh, addicted to centralized control for every problem under the sun, we shouldn't be surprised if that same type of thing happens here. I mean, we're already talking about the largest government in the history of the world. The only thing that is missing from the future dystopian kind of films and books that we all know about are like the the patrols going down the streets at all hours. That's the only difference, I think, is like grabbing people and locking them up when they're out of line constantly, although mm-hmm. it happens to some degree already. So there's a lot of education that needs to happen, I think. Yeah, well, and I think you mentioned community. I think a lot of community building, too, and starting to build the things that, I mean, you know, like the hundred hospitals that have disappeared, starting Mm -hmm. to build things that people are already starting to feel the pain there. But if, you know, if and when, I'm not even going to say if, when the the federal house of cards collapses, there are going to be a lot of things that have that have traditionally been provided for by the government that people who believe that's where these things come from are just going to be yes. left standing there going, what, you know, what do I do now? If we can focus on building those things now, building alternative, you know, hospitals, um, I don't want to say welfare, but like mutual aid. Mutual system. aid is huge. Yeah. Vermin Supreme. I don't yeah. know if you follow Vermin He's, at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he's a funny a dude. He he's kind a of a comedy. leftist, but I think he's a good human being. And he started this thing and probably at urging of some of, of his team started this Vermin Supreme Institute. And he's basically going around doing mutual aid uh, for oh, homeless wow. people, people wow. kicked out of their home. Like, this is really important stuff in my mind. Oh, and yeah. I also think agorism of all types, whether it's the 20,000 people uh, running or the 20,000 some odd food carts that have been operating in Los Angeles County or LA illegally for so many years. And then eventually the city council was like, well, that thing that you guys have been doing that we've been trying to stop you from doing for so long. Well, now it's okay. (laughs) And the reason it becomes okay is because it was, was the human action that decided to do it in the first place without first getting approval. Literally begging city council to give you a permission slip was not the way to do it, It was literally to create an environment where this was ubiquitous in society first. Yeah, that's not easy. No, but I think that's something that's something we can do with mutual aid. Um, Yes. You know, I I know firsthand my my grandmother was in a I want to a care home, but that conjures up sort of institutional imagery. She was a member of a mutual aid society that had started, you know, got like a hundred years ago. 
And they, one of the things that the society did was it promised that if you, uh, when you became elderly, um, this is for women only, but when you became elderly, you could move into one of their homes and you would be cared for for the rest of your life. As long as, yeah, as long as when you moved in, you could basically take care of yourself. You would be cared for, you could have a debilitating stroke the next day and they would take care of you for the rest of their life. I, I used to visit my grandmother when she was in this home. It was incredible. It was an actual community. It was a nice old refurbished Victorian home in in Nebraska. Um, They had like a nursing station upstairs. They had really, it was like, I think two staff for at some parts times of the day, two staff to each, each resident there. I mean, it was like ridiculously high staff. It was incredible. It was incredible. Um, Sorry. The other way around one staff to two, to two residents. Whatever. Yeah. That's also, it was, it was incredible. There was nothing institutional about it. It was, you know, everyone had their own room. They ate together in the dining room. Do you know if it still exists? So, yes. So here's my quick story about that. It does still exist. Not exactly in the same form because the state. So, so basically states across the nation had been cracking down on these. Yes. Um, I know because they're in bed with the insurance companies and blah, blah, blah. So what happened soon after my grandmother passed away, the state of Nebraska came in and said, um, okay, we're not going to grandfather you in any anymore on. um," So there were, there were two things. One is they had this, this funding method where basically what you did when you were ready to move into one of these places was you donated the bulk of your assets to the group. Um, and that's whether you're wealthy, whether you're, poor. my grandmother yeah. <clears throat> sold her home for, I think it was like between 15 and $20,000, you know, in, in rural, Nebraska, you know, tiny little right. Nebraska town, that's not going to buy you much care. You know, no. that's, that maybe would cover a few months at any, any other place, but she put it into the pool. Other people had put in more. And so, and then they invest the money, um, God only knows how they make it happen, but somehow with, with their model, they were able to provide this incredible level of care. The state of Nebraska came in and said, no, that's not fair. You know, some people are paying more than others. It's, you know, it's, it's Mm. not a fair arrangement. Do they regulate them kind of out of there? Exactly. So they've regulated them out of existence. Another thing about these homes was that because it was a mutual aid society, because it was a membership organization, they weren't subject to a lot of the regulations. Like if you're going to become a a certified care facility, you have to do all these things that are very costly. They didn't have to do those things. They still provided amazing service. I would say much better than in other care facilities. And I think that, I think the state of Nebraska also came in and said, you can't be grandfathered in on that anymore. Basically that's really awful. They regulated these used to be all over the country. Um, They were. Yeah. Mutual aid, I think is a, I don't know enough about it, but I just started seeing, and I follow vermin on, on Twitter, uh, and I just started seeing him post in the last like six months or so about mutual aid. And like, this is really, this is basically, this is libertarianism in action. Basically Absolutely. when, when pe- you tell people like, you don't need government for this, we can tell them it all we want. It doesn't get, they through. don't believe it until you prove it. Yeah. And so this is, and we're maybe talking about just scratching the surface and I have not looked into this nearly enough, but it's something that I find very exciting that people can do to have positive impacts on their own lives and the lives of people that are close to them that they love 
right now or people they don't even know. Instead of giving mm -hmm. to some government-approved charity that has tons of bureaucracy where most of the money goes to paying salaries, mutual aid is probably pretty amazing. Uh, Derek Bros, John Bush, and a few other people in Texas have uh, formed this Along these lines, something called freedom cells. Basically, yes, yes. you're familiar. Okay, freedom yeah, cells yeah, is awesome. They're that's, that's pushing along this same kind of a line, which is really about you know like work with your community, find mm -hmm. ways to provide services outside of the system, and build from there. And like you say, now, just that, do is, it. Is, just... is that the solution? I don't know, but it sure is a piece of the puzzle. I mean, I think, I think all of case. these things, whatever, whatever some, whatever someone is motivated to do, I would never want to say, okay, well, we've been having a lot of effect on pushing back against the police state with uh, local legislation. I would never want to tell someone that's the only way to do it. Now, yeah. can you find another way? Yeah. Uh, through cryptography to deal with surveillance, for example? Are there other ways to deal with healthcare systems? Because that is a hugely that's, regulated area. Yeah, I know, for example, in my account. work, we support something called the direct primary care model, mm -hmm. which basically takes a certain set of basic care, healthcare services, and it it exempts it from the regulatory burden that would be under the insurance system. So it basically puts it outside of the regulatory state and just says, hey, we're going to provide you this service. It's like Netflix for healthcare. Mm -hmm. You pay one uh, flat monthly fee of, I know there's one in like Glendale, for example, it's starting to come here in California, you pay like a hundred bucks a month and you get really good service. I know my uh, longtime coworker and great friend, Mike Meharry had this service while he was living in Kentucky and he He's like, man, I would text my doctor and get like responses in minutes to an hour. Can you imagine doing that to like a regular, regular physician? It's just never going to happen. So you get better service uh, and you get kind of an all access thing for a flat fee. And, and the part of the reason is it's not under the heavy, expensive burden of all these regulations. Now, yeah. The more that you do that, the more maybe people will say, well, why don't we add this other service to it, right. to the direct make primary? Make a crack, primary. make a crack. How, yeah, how I, it, without going into too much detail, how do those services get exempted or get, get um, removed? It's through legislation. It okay. really, it's so through. it's state it's, by state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, for example, there's a bill sitting on the governor of South Dakota's desk, I believe, that would create a direct primary care model for the state. There's another bill, I can't remember what state, that would actually take their current model and they're trying to expand it to other issues as well. Yeah. So it started like this three, four years ago, and it's been pretty successful and people like it uh, and doctors like it and patients like it. So then now someone got the idea, well, we should include this to it. And we've seen this kind of same process play out on medical marijuana as well. In many states, it started out as very restrictive. And then two years later, they'd say, well, we should add PTSD to that list, or we should add mm -hmm. epilepsy to that list, or glaucoma. And then when or Oklahoma came around and did this, yeah, yeah, for exa yeah, exactly. Uh, then when Oklahoma did it, they finally set past one in Oklahoma that said, well, it's not going to be up to the legislation to list which things a doctor can recommend cannabis for. It's up to the doctor.
Nice. And I think at some That's point amazing. you can build to that on this kind of direct primary care model, or I don't know, I don't know where you can go with, I haven't thought of how this could play out with mutual aid, but I know a lot of the mutual aid societies kind of started out how you were describing with your, with your grandmother. It's really providing these essential and, services. Yeah, and they for used to be so widespread. If you yeah. read, if you read, um, from, from mutual, from mutual aid to the welfare state, um, by David. Oh, Pito, I've never I heard of this. Think. Oh, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to send it to you. This is, this is important. Um, oh, killer. Uh, in fact, I'll link, I'll link to this in the show notes. Um, nice. Yeah. He talks about how widespread um, mutual aid was in the U S also in the UK a bit. I'm kind of more familiar with um, here in, in the U S but it was very, like, God, I want to say something like 70% of, of working people were, members of some kind of mutual aid. And it was wow. often, it was often like, you know, you'd have the steel workers association or you might have an African-American association. There were these, yeah. these groups, these tribes, tribes um, who really had had a, a society geared towards their needs. So you would have like the Irish, you would have Italian immigrants, you would have women. Like my mom, my grandmother's was, yeah. um, you know, women school teachers. So very sort of specific to a particular tribe or group, you know, that's great. A, a group that has similar interests. So, yeah. Or similar needs. Similar needs. Yeah. Like yeah. there's a women, battered women shelter right down the street from me. Can you imagine like some rando dude trying to go in there? Of course it's tailored to a very specific right. type of a situation. Right. Why not have the same thing for other services? Well, and it makes it easy because it, because it's sort of, they were very close knit. Um, it made enforcement pretty easy. So if someone tried to take mm. advantage of the system, there, first of all, there's an incentive to to yeah. get them out of there because that's everyone's money. But it was also people knew each other. It was much more personal. So yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll link to I'll put a link up to this on the show notes because. And I, I think I it's really have to apologize. I know I railed over you when you were talking about Sheriff Mack and getting into this whole idea no, of <laughs> Sheriff lobbying. But you were actually get you're like, oh, I had him on recently. Was yeah, there yeah. something specific I mean, you wanted to discuss on no, that? He's. I mean, I think he's wonderful. I guess my he question is a very, is, very, very like sweet and loving human being too. Like I've hung out with him many times over yeah. the years. It's been a couple of years since I talked to him. I know he wasn't well for a while. Oh, uh, so yeah. I hope he's actually he had some heart problems maybe four or five years ago. Okay. Uh, so I've been seeing him out doing some events he's recently. Been, yeah, I know he's at he's, one in Tennessee. He's been out so doing that, stuff. I think, you know, I just think this idea of, um, well, first of all, is he, is he right? I mean, a lot of people are saying this, that it's really up to the sheriff to determine which laws are enforced and which ones are not. Is, is that really the last sort of the, the, the lowest common denominator, the last line of defense? I mean, if you get, well, jury nullification can be a last line of defense yeah, as well, because once someone's caged, uh, like FIJA, F-I-J-A dot org is one of the best organizations in the country, just as a general rule, I think. Yeah. Uh, but they basically focus all their their work on juries, trial by jury, because when someone is arrested yeah. for something, for some nonviolent crime, or they're being pressured by the state in some ways, you have a role. I used to try to get out of jury duty, and now I don't get called for it anymore. I would love to actually be a, on a jury for some case, for some nonviolent case, and be able to say not guilty. You know, I'd love love to be able to do that. But I think the law is unjust. Um, but yeah, sheriffs. If you think about it, they absolutely do have a role because if they're 
and I, I know Mac is kind of going along, kind of taking an oath to the Constitution. If you take an oath to the Constitution, the Constitution means what it was supposed to mean right off the bat, no matter what the Supreme Court has to say or what other politicians. If you take an oath to that, that should be serious. And I don't think that they should be, uh, you know, enforcing all kinds of bad stuff on people. And his example that he used to give at a, events that we'd be at simultaneously, he's like, if I was a cop that showed up when Rosa Parks refused to move to the back of the bus, the right thing that I, sh I would have done was I would have gone and escorted her personally to wherever she needed to go to make sure she was safe. I mean, that hits home to me. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. That's what a peace officer would do. Unfortunately, right. they're generally law enforcement officers, and they're taking an oath to follow whatever some superior tells them to do. But yes, this is an important part because, yes, there are many, there are a lot of law enforcement officers, and you have to actually address a problem, which is like, look, you shouldn't be doing this to these people. And the more that Mac makes headway in this, the more that he can encourage uh, individuals on the ground in very specific situations to be like, I can use my discretion to say, you know what? I am not going to lock this person up tonight. I'm going to mm -hmm. send them home. Mm -hmm. I can tell them, look, you know, you're violating the law tonight, but I have enforcement discretion and I'm going to let you go. I mean, it'd be as simple as that. And the more that that happens, I think the better. Yeah. Yeah. And um, my thought, you know, you're railing about how awful the sheriffs were. There were some good ones with regard to the lockdowns here in California who said, no, we're, just, oh, yeah, we're not yeah. doing this. We're not enforcing this. My thinking is that once the slush front fund from the federal government dries up, that the, the, the motivations are going to change with sheriffs, with mm -hmm. law enforcement. I, I feel like that that just seems like that's such a big part of the equation. Once they're not beholden to this, you know, this behemoth in Washington telling them what to do and you're not going to get paid, you're not going to get our money if, if, if you don't, I think the game changes then. Yeah, the Albuquerque Police Department is a great example of this. Uh, New Mexico is one of the first states that actually restricted asset forfeiture both on a state level and they also restricted that 80 to 20 percent partnership that i was talking about on a federal level it's called equitable sharing mm -hmm. and albuquerque basically said albuquerque pd basically said we can't meet our budgets without this and they were freaking out so wow. uh, it's been a few years they basically violated the restrictions for a few years and they're slowly getting shut down but over time yes a lot of the stuff has to be scaled back and there would be a lot less officers because there's a lot less laws to enforce over right. time right. and you don't need so many of them you don't, you don't need, need that this... budget that you can't make because you're off right. doing things that don't need to be done Right. Yeah. So in many ways, I like a lot of the ideas from the defund the police movement. Uh, it's just that I think, I don't know, I haven't put tons of thought to it. I'm not a big fan of government enforcement agents, whether they're ATF or LAPD, for example, because they're doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing in the first place. And they're locking people up or ruining their lives for things they shouldn't be doing. I just did one of my podcast episodes on this thing called predictive policing, yeah. where they're using algorithms to basically predict 
500 by 500 foot square blocks of where crime is going to happen. And then they blast a bunch of resources there. And then, of course, they're making more arrests and they're feeding into the algorithm that more arrests are happening. Right. And so therefore, the algorithm tells them to keep policing that area more and more and more. So it's this kind of feedback loop. But there's one that's happening in uh, Pasco County, Florida, where they've basically what they do is once you get on this hot list, so they use this. It's basically like a social credit score. If you watch Black Mirror, uh, yeah. you know, this kind of dystopian idea of like, oh, if you're not kind of following the rules societally, you're going to get a negative score and you're not going to be able to do stuff. Well, government is already doing this uh, through uh, software called like PredPol is one, Palantir, which is a Peter Thiel backed mm -hmm. uh, company uh, that was actually funded originally by the CIA or the CIA's investment firm. Uh, I think it's called IQ something, whatever. So these militarized applications and then they use federal grant programs, hand these things to local police. Dozens of police agencies around the country are using them. And one of them, for example, in Pasco County, Florida, the sheriff creates this hot list of like the top number of people that might commit crime. And Jeez. then every officer gets kind of like a wanted printout or maybe a, a display screen of people that they're supposed to that's on this hot list. And they give them face to face meetings, literally showing up any time of the day, knocking on the door, following them, using license plate readers and stingray cell site simulators, wow. tracking them. And the number is pretty astounding. You'd think, oh, well, they got like a hundred or so people and they're going to visit them every now and then. But it was like 12,000 visits recorded over a period of a number of years. So, I mean, they're literally stalking and harassing people. This is, wow. I don't know How what made me legal? even think of this. How is that legal? Well, legal <laughs> you don't is have to what people that. with guns tell you is legal, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. they're getting sued. Uh, by Institute so. for Justice. I hope so. Uh, yeah, but I don't really, really trust the court system one. a lot. They're amazing. IJ.org has a lot on this particular issue, predictive policing in Pasco County, Florida, and they've got a federal lawsuit to try to stop it. But I mean, if you think about it, I want them to win because I want this to stop. But on the other hand, I'm also recognizing that the whole system came from Washington, D.C. in the first place. And now they're going to a federal court to say, can you right, right. help stop well, that, this beast that you unleashed? Yeah. So that gets back to my question about the common law movement, which mm. probably you don't have an answer for this either, but I'll just throw this out there. I'm there comfortable are... not having answers sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I'm just sort of starting to look into this myself, but, um, you know, the idea of setting up common law courts, the idea of setting up independent courts that are that are separate from the federal the state whatever local courts there are um and and again i i know very little about this but there's there's a real interest in or there's i think there's a real recognition happening right now that the justice system that what we think of as justice isn't yeah. really justice and it's that corrupt. we need to take it yeah and that we need to not not just abandon any ideas of justice at all, but create alternatives and create our own mm. our own systems for doing that. So I have no idea what's going on there, but the concept sound like, yeah, there has to be something else. I am yeah. totally on board with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I should let you go. Um, thank you so much for coming back on again. This, I'm going to have a lot of links here because we covered a lot of territory, but um, this was really fun. I really appreciate it. And letting me just kind of blab about stuff. And this is great. This is fantastic. You've got a lot to say. Um, and this is also critical. I mean, I, I feel like 
as we said, sort of laying the groundwork for, because things are going to get worse in, in, yeah. in a lot of ways. And I think if we can be laying the groundwork now, um, that's kind of, that's sort of the most important thing we can be doing. Yeah. I think it's hard a lot of times for people to think that maybe the work that they do for liberty won't actually get them liberty in their own lifetime. But I would say, even if that's the case for each person out there, I think you pick one or two things that are the most important to you and find maybe an hour a week, uh, two hours a week, an hour a month, whatever, and just make it like a task, like part of your life and create a new habit of I'm going to spend some time either researching and really getting a grasp on this particular issue. And then I'm going to try to teach other people. And then maybe I'm going to try to find ways to kind of build systems outside or participate in systems that are doing an end run around whatever issue. I think mm-hmm. the more that people start doing that, uh, the more more impact we're all going to have in the long run. Yeah, I think so too. Thank you so much for coming on. You rule. I'm very grateful for the opportunity and I guess we'll do it again in another yes, few months, will. right? Yes, we will. <laughs> Thank okay, you. Okay, awesome. I appreciate it. Have a great day and we'll be in touch soon. You're going to me- yes. you'll message me all the links on this. I will. Right? I will. Yeah, there's a lot of links on this one. I will. Thanks. Okay, cool. Okay. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. All right.